Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the Gospel of Luke, chapter seven. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Caesar's Comet, 44 BC, the most famous comet of antiquity, seven-day visitation interpreted by the Romans as a sign of the deification of the recently assassinated Caesar, Julius Caesar. Virgil writes about it, the poet Virgil. He says, never did fearsome comets so often blaze the sky. Ovid writes about it in his Metamorphoses. He says, take up Caesar's spirit from his murdered corpse and change it into a star so that the deified Julius may always look down from his high temple on our capital and Roman forum. Shakespeare writes about it, when beggars die, there are no comets seen, but when the heavens themselves declare the death of princes. Octavius is going to use this politically. The nephew, he's now Caesar Augustus, he's going to use that comet and the deification of Caesar to his own advantage politically. He will have coins minted with temple to Caesar, the god, and he'll show the comet, the star in the sky. Julius Caesar is a god. He'll have a temple built in Rome at the Forum, the temple of Julius Caesar, a god called the Temple of the Comet Star. It's still there to this day. You can go to the Roman Forum and see the Temple of Julius. People still put flowers on the altar there. He had coins minted with the star, the comet, the comet of Caesar. Caesar is God. Julius Caesar is God. Julius Caesar is God. There's his temple. These coins sell to this day for $19,000 for one of these coins. It's history. If Julius Caesar was God, then Octavian, his son, is son of God. This is all happening at the same time. So all the coins have God on the front and son of God on the back. To this day, you can find these coins, God and son of God. Now, Octavius changes his name to Caesar Augustus. He will rule the Roman Empire for the next 40 years. That's one biblical generation. This is right when Christ was born. Julius Caesar, in his last will, said that he wanted lots of money to go for games and entertainment, you know, like Olympic games and entertainment for the public. But Mark Anthony controlled the treasury, and he said to Octavius, to to Caesar Augustus, no, 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 we're not going to use the money for that. He had the funds. So Octavius borrows money himself to carry out his uncle's wishes, and he makes the games happen and the entertainment and so the public love him and the soldiers love him he garners much considerable support from the troops of Julius Caesar so he's building a great army so in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled they're going to be counted because they want to know how much money is going to be coming in and how many projects they can do and how far they can expand and spread and how they can outfit the military and what roads they can build And he has a great army. And this is wonderful for keeping peace because there's no one who can come up against this army. So this next hundred years is called Pax Romana, where Rome can keep peace because of its great military strength. And he has coins minted for that. So it's very important to keep peace, keep peace, keep peace. So not only does he call himself son of God, but he's also the prince of peace because he can keep Pax Romana. See, you getting this? 
So Augustus dramatically enlarged the empire. He expanded into Egypt. He took Africa. He took Hispania. He reformed taxation. He made networks of roads, fabulous, wonderful roads that are still intact today. You know all roads lead to Rome. Okay, and he established a great army, a Praetorian guard, police, firefighters, uh, really rebuilt and spread the empire. They had taken over from the Greeks. Remember Alexander the Great? Rome conquered the Greeks, the Greeks already had knowledge. They loved philosophy. They loved the study of wisdom. They had a lot of knowledge. They had wonderful language to explain the concepts. The Greeks did. The Romans take it over. They adopt the Greek gods, make them into Roman gods. Now they're making the emperor's gods. They make a great road system. They have a great political system in place, a great army. And the Jews have the revealed law of God. Now, do you see those three cultures coming together is the absolute perfect storm for a Christ to be born. And that's why St. Paul says in Galatians 4, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters, all of us. So the heavens were telling the glory of God. Julius Caesar had a comet in the sky. He is a god. Look at his comet. But there was another star that appeared in the sky. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and it was in Bethlehem, little podunk Bethlehem, but it's under the Roman Empire. And in the days of Herod the Great, when he was king, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he? Where is he that's been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star. We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And when Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests, the scribes, all the people, he inquired, where is this Christ? Where is this Messiah supposed to be born? What do the scriptures say? What do the scriptures say? This good Jewish king didn't know the scriptures. And they told him, in Bethlehem, in Bethlehem of Judea, so it's written by the prophet. So he tells those wise men, you go and diligently search for this child. And when you have found him, come and get me. Give me word too, so I too can go worship him. Lo, the star rested over the place where he was born. They find the child. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They go into the house. They see the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down. These great kings from the east who have traveled far and wide, they fall down in front of this baby and worship him. The three kings get warned in a dream not to return to Herod. So they depart by way, a different way, back to their own country. Now, Caesar will rule for 40 years at this time. That's one biblical generation. And then he dies on August 19th of 14 AD. And so, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate and Herod are ruling. And here you are in Galilee. This is your town, peaceful, quiet, and in comes Rome. A detachment has been put in your town and you hear them coming, the ground rumbling under their feet as they march, a hundred soldiers armed with sword shield armor as they move down your street, moving in units, uh, just an incredible military machine, uh, riding alongside them on a proud mount as a centurion, distinguished in his attire, he is the leader, and he is one who has worked his way up through the ranks by merit of virtue. Actually, the centurions had much virtue and they get put into a position of authority because they're trusted. And they were in charge of a, they're a captain of 100 men, at least 100 men, 100 foot soldiers in a legion. And they were veteran soldiers who commanded 100 men each within a legion of 6,000 soldiers. And there were 60 sentries in a legion and each under the command of a centurion. And during the time of Augustus Caesar, Rome had 28 legions. It's a lot of soldiers. 
Herod had built, had done much building. The people were being taxed by Herod because he was building everywhere. He had made palaces for himself all over Israel. He had built Caesarea Maritima, which Rome took as a headquarter because it was by the Mediterranean Sea and they could sail in and out to Italy, the different cohorts that were coming. And it's still there to this day, Caesarea Maritima. There's a beautiful aqueduct there. There's a Roman amphitheater. There's a Greek hippodrome where they could do chariot races. It's all still intact. But this is where a lot of the soldiers were headquartered. Centurions are mentioned often in the New Testament. I counted 24 times mentions of different centurion soldiers. A common soldier was paid between 200 and 300 denarii per year. That's not very much. Roman soldiers would come from Rome to Jerusalem, especially at crowded times like Passover. Why? To keep Pax Romana, to keep peace, because these Jews have these feasts and they're going to come from all over the diaspora and there's going to be, there could be rioting, there could be this, there could be that. We have to be there with guards. To ensure Pax Romana and crowd uprisings, there were always soldiers dispatched ordering common execution was crucifixion by Rome, by the empire, and for those who dare challenge Rome, there were always soldiers outside the city gates and many crucifixions going on. It was their form of capital punishment. So we see Jesus had to march with Roman soldiers. Many times we see in the scourging and different scenes But at the cross, there's a centurion who was keeping watch over Jesus. He saw the earthquake, and he was filled with awe, and he said, truly, truly, this was the Son of God. Many of the pagan centurions, men of virtues, became God-fearers, and they became believers. The centurion in Luke's gospel saw what had taken place. He praised God, and he said, certainly, this man was innocent. And Pilate, wondering if Jesus was dead already, summoned a centurion and asked him, is he dead? And when Pilate learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, he gave the body to Joseph of Arimathea. Pilate approved for a guard of Roman soldiers to be at the tomb of Jesus Christ because they said, you know what they said, they're going to steal his body. We got to get that guarded. So he let a, a, a crew of soldiers guard the tomb. And Matthew has the same story that we see tonight. Matthew 8 is the healing of the centurion's slave. And you know, the first Gentile Christian was a centurion. In Acts chapter 10, it was Cornelius, and Peter is sent to him, and he and his whole household get baptized. So the first Gentile baptized Christian, a pagan Roman centurion soldier who became a God-fearer, who became a Christian, and his whole household. Centurions receive more pay than soldiers, 20 times more than ordinary soldiers, 5,000 denarii a year. And five senior centurions in a legion got 10,000 denarii a year. And the chief centurion that had the head javelin, he got 20,000 denarius a year. That's why he could help build the synagogue in Capernaum. He was well paid. He had a lot of money. So let's see what it says in Luke 7. Jesus ended all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, and he entered Capernaum. You know Capernaum is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a fishing town. It's where Peter lived. He had healed Peter's mother-in-law there. The name literally means Nahum's village. It had a population of whopping 1,500 people live there, and you can still see the ruins of the Roman period. There is a Catholic church built over St. Peter's house, and there's that synagogue that the centurion helped build. There's been two. There was one before this one. That would have been the one he helped with, the first century one. This is a fourth century one, stands in the same spot. It's built over the other one. There is a centurion. He had a slave who was very dear to him. So he's a man of virtue. He loves his slave. 
He loves his servant. He loves those who work in his household. He was sick and to the point of death. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his slave. He will send Jews. He doesn't want Jesus to get in trouble. If he's with a pagan centurion, he's going to be unclean. He, he sends Jews to go talk to him. And they come to Jesus and they besought him earnestly. And they say, he's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy, Jesus. He's worthy. He's worthy to have you do this for him because he loves our nation. He loves Israel. And he helped build our synagogue in our town. He's a good one. He's a good one. And Jesus went with them. He accompanies them back. He doesn't care if he's going to be unclean. And when they're not far from the house, the centurion sends friends saying, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. What a contrast. They're saying, he's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. And he's saying, I'm not worthy. That's humility. Therefore, I didn't presume to come to you. I didn't make that presumption, but you just say the word, say the word and let my servant be healed. The word, the word of Jesus Christ is so powerful. They're starting to understand this, the authority and the power and the conviction of his word. You don't even have to come Just say the word. That's all you have to do. The centurion gets that. He might've heard of how, when Jesus drew out the leper, Jesus commanded with his word, the leper to leave the man's body. And he has to, because the authority of his word. The demon has no choice but to leave. They have to obey. The authority of his word is so great that the demons must leave the body of the possessed. And this soldier, this centurion, he gets authority. He understands the chain of command. He says, I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say, come, and he comes. Or, or their heads fall, right? He knows authority. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and he turned and said to the multitude that was following him, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith as this centurion man, this pagan soldier from Rome. He gets it. He understands the authority of my word. He's humble. He has virtue. He cares for, for this dying man who's way beneath him, a slave. And this is what we say at mass every time now. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave well. Lord, do not trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and thy servant will be healed. That's what we say when we go up for healing in the power of the Eucharist. I'm not worthy that you would come inside my body to dwell into this temple on the roof of my mouth. You're, I, I, I'm not worthy, but only say the word and my soul will be healed. That's what the Eucharist does. Eucharist after Eucharist after Eucharist after Eucharist after Eucharist. You're healed and you're healed more and you're healed deeper and you're healed deeper and you're healed deeper. When you go forth for Eucharist, ask for that healing. Be open to the power of that healing, to that word. Only say the word and my soul will be healed. That's a Gentile centurion, no greater faith than all of Israel. Now, what other miracle happened in this chapter? Only Luke tells this miracle. And it's a biggie. It's a resurrection. It doesn't get any bigger than that. No one else tells about the widow of Nain and her son. <laughs> no one. Not Matthew. Not Mark. Not John. How many Old Testament resurrections are there? This is as big as it gets. How many Old Testament resurrections? Three. Three. The divine number. The number of the Trinity. The widow at Zarephath's son. The Shumanite woman's son. And then a man gets tossed into Elisha's tomb and he springs back to life. Jesus is at the town gate with another widow in despair. 
This is exactly what we heard about a few weeks ago. The widow in despair at the town gate. It was the widow at Zarephath. Remember, she was collecting sticks for their last meal. She's had a little flour and a little oil. That's it. They're going to die. It's a famine. Three and a half year famine. This man of God comes. She's Zarephath. It's not even their prophet. And And he wants her last meal. And God inspires her to say yes and gives her faith. He is going to resurrect her son eventually because her son dies and she's a widow and it's her only son. And Elijah is going to resurrect the widow's son. And Elijah is going to give the son, the only son, back into the arms of his widowed mother. The second Old Testament resurrection is Elisha. Remember, Elisha was the one who wanted a double portion of Elijah's spirit when he went up in the fiery chariot. Throw me down your mail. I want a double portion of your spirit. So Elijah got one resurrection. But Elisha is going to get two resurrections, a double portion, as big as it gets miracle. He wanted a double portion. He'll do two resurrections. The first one, twice as many as Elijah. The first one is on a Shumanite woman's son. Elijah came into the house. The kid's lying dead on the bed. He shuts the door. He goes in. He prays to the Lord. He lays upon the child, puts mouth upon mouth, eyes upon eyes, hands upon hands like a cruciform cross stretches out his body upon his, and the flesh of this child starts to become warm again. He got up, walked around, walked to and fro, went and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, a perfection of sneezes. And the child opens his eyes. It's resurrection number two of Elisha. The third resurrection is in 2 Kings 13. Once some Israelites were burying a man and they saw a band of raiders, a grave robbers coming. So they quickly threw the man into the tomb of Elisha, onto his body. And when it touched Elisha's bones, the man sprang to life and stood up on his feet. This is a great miracle of Elisha the prophet, the one with the double portion of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, this is the typology. Elijah is the typology for John the Baptist. Elisha is the typology for Jesus Christ. How much Holy Spirit does Jesus Christ have? Elisha has a double portion. Jesus Christ has all the Holy Spirit, undivided unity in his divinity. He has a full portion. Remember in Luke's gospel, the Holy Spirit comes on him in bodily form and stays on him. That's how John knows. In John's gospel, John says, the one the Holy Spirit comes on and stays on, that's the one. That's Messiah. God tells him that. And so Jesus Christ has a full portion of the Holy Spirit in his divine nature. He has the full trinity undivided unity. And and how many resurrections did Jesus do? Infinity Holy Spirit, and he does infinity resurrections because you're going to rise from the dead. Everyone in here is going to rise from the dead one day. We say it in the Nicene Creed every Sunday. I look forward to the resurrection of the dead. He's going to rise everybody for final judgment. You're going to go up. You're going to go down. You're going somewhere. You're going to be risen. So it's really cool. They're, they're in Nain. That's really close. It's only five miles from Nazareth. Nazareth is Jesus' hometown. That's where Mary lives. That's where Joseph lived. That's where the carpentry shop was. It's right there. And he's with a great crowd. It's just five miles south of Nazareth. That's Mary's hometown. And who's the only writer that has Mary's story? Luke. And who's the only one who puts this resurrection five miles from Nazareth in this book? Luke, who do you think told him this story? No one else knows it because you'd include a resurrection. Here's Nazareth, there's Nain, and it's only two miles from the Shumanite woman's resurrection. This is resurrection territory here. (laughs) Jesus drew near to the gate at the city of Nain, and behold, a man who had died. He's being carried out. He's the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. 
I'm always so moved by that because it means to be moved with pity. He sees this woman is her only son. Her only son is dead. This is destitution for the widow. She doesn't inherit the land. Women don't inherit the land. The tribes inherit the land. The men inherit the land. The next of kin brother inherits the land, not the wife. So a woman who has an only son that dies is destitute. She can glean in the fields. She can beg. And he has compassion on her. This is so close to Nazareth. I think he's thinking of his own mom when he dies soon. And she, he's her only son, and this is what my mom's going to be like. And he says to her, do not weep. And he came and he touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, it's just with his word, I say to you, arise. The power of his word, and the dead man sat up and began to speak. Can you imagine being there that day? And Jesus gave him to his mother. This is exactly what Elijah did. He gave the resurrected son back to the widow. Blessed are you who weep now for one day. You will laugh. He had just preached that. Fear seized them all. They glorified God, saying, A great prophet, a great prophet has arisen among us today, here in Nain. Podunk, Nain. No one even knows about it. God has visited his people here in Nain. Maybe this is what Moses meant. When the Lord told Moses in Deuteronomy 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all I command him. They're waiting for a prophet from their own. The report came concerning him through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Only Luke has his miraculous resurrection in Nain. Only Luke has Mary's story. And this is so close to home, so close to home for Jesus in so many ways. And this scene foreshadows his own mother, what she will face one day soon. And maybe Mary told Luke the story. And Mary, too, is going to be a widow. We know she was probably a widow at the cross because Joseph wasn't there. And if Joseph was alive, he would have been there with her. But Mary is also widow Israel because she's the hinge pin between the two covenants. She's a daughter of Zion, and she's a daughter of the new covenant. She's a mother of the church. She's both. She might remember the widow at Nain and the resurrection of her only son, and it might give her hope in the darkest moment of her life, hope that maybe he will rise, like he said, on the third day. Now the church uses this story, the widow of Nain, this obscure story only in Luke on St. Monica's feast day. Did you know that? Who loves St. Monica? Who has wayward sons? Who's praying to Monica for intercession? This is, the ch- this is what they use at Mass, because this son was dead, and then he's raised. And he's given new life in Christ, just like our sons could be. And this is why the church in her great wisdom uses this for this feast day of St. Monica, giving hope. Uh, The mother Monica hoped for her dead son, spiritually dead son, Augustine. And both became great Catholic saints. Augustine was forgiven much. He was naughty, 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 naughty. (laughs) Give me salvation, just not yet. He was forgiven so much so he could love so much. And that's the last story we see tonight, our final vignette. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him at his house. And so he went into the home of the Pharisee's house and sat at table. This Pharisee's name was Simon. Behold, a woman of the city entered who was a sinner. And she learned that he was sitting at table in the Pharisee's house. And she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping, This alabaster ointment, once you open it, it can't be resealed. It's extremely expensive. She began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. She kissed his feet. She didn't say a word. 
She anointed his feet with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, now he's just thinking to himself. He said to himself, he didn't say this out loud. He's just thinking this. He said to himself, if this man, Jesus, is such a prophet, he would have known who that sort of woman is that's touching him. She's a sinner. He didn't say it. He thought it. Now, why did Jesus come? Simeon told Mary that Jesus came so that the thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. Jesus can read hearts, and he knows what Simon is thinking. And Jesus answered Simon, saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, what is it, teacher? A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he forgave them both. Now, which one of them would love him more? Okay, you owe $500 or $50, you get released of 500 Simon answered, the one I suppose who he forgave more. And Jesus said, you have judged rightly. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water to wash my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. She has wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And this is a very intimate scene. This woman loves Jesus. She is pouring out her tears. She is pouring out her love. She is lavishing him extravagantly with her most expensive, probably her bridal ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, because he can read hearts, her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she has loved much. She's the 500. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Simon, you're stingy with your love. You did nothing for me. You're no host. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Redeemed sinners have the grace needed to love well. If you have sinned greatly in your life, maybe you've done something you're so ashamed of way back when, and you don't even want to think about it, and you can't even think about it. Redeemed sinners who have known God's grace can love really, 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 really well. Anybody in here a sinner? Because you love well. Think of the love in this room that's possible because we've been forgiven of so much, so much that we're ashamed of. He doesn't want us condemned. He wants us saved. The evil one wants to condemn you. Once you've confessed your sin in confession and the priest absolves you, You're forgiven. You can go and sin no more. You have so much love. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Love abounds all the more. You know the mercy of God. You can give that away. Redeemed sinners have grace needed to love lavishly. Redeemed sinners have grace needed to love extravagantly. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who is this who even forgives sins? When they put the paralytic man through, he dropped in. And Jesus said, Your sins are forgiven. Well, only God can forgive sins. Now he's forgiving her sin. Only God can forgive sin. Only God can. Is this him? Is this Messiah? Do you think this is him? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He or she who is forgiven much can love much. Glory to God. Now, would you like to have been there? Would you like to be that woman? Would you like to have dinner with Jesus? Well, you can. Every time you go to Mass, you have dinner with Jesus. He's the main chorus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world so that you can love much. And we say, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, into my temple, but only say the word and your servant will be healed. 
You just heard the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 7, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.